This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, Melbourne, and everyone listening via the web. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and you are listening to Radio Therapy. Now, talking of great shows, have we got a line-up for you this morning? Two guests have braved the Melbourne elements this morning to join us in the Triple R studios. First up, we have Dr. Helen Opdam. Helen is the National Medical Director of Donate Life, and she's here to tell us all about organ donation and kick off Organ Donation Week in Australia. In fact, maybe, maybe I'll donate an organ on the show. <laughs> on the show. Okay. Can I dissect? Yeah, yeah, you can dissect, and, and, and uh, someone else can choose which organ I donate. Good what to are the see ones... your heart's in its deep. Well, uh, thank you. Sorry. One of the ones I'm not using will donate. I don't know. What would that be in my brain? Um, anyway, next to Helen is Professor Jeff McColl. Jeff is head of the Melbourne Medical School at Melbourne University. This is the top-rated medical school in the country. I only say that because I went there. It's the top-rated <laughs> medical school in the country and a school that recently underwent a complete change to a postgraduate course. He'll tell us all about that change. But he's also going to tell us about the work he does with the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, or as I like to call it, the PBAC. <laughs> We're laughing because that's what the outsiders call it, and I'm an outsider of everything. This is the group that decides which medications get funded in Australia, and we're going to talk about how that works. Also on the mic this morning, we've got Master Doyle. Those of you who remember Master Doyle, because he's been away on holidays, lazy, we call him his rov- our roving junior journalist. Can I just say, I've been interning at SBS, so not really a holiday. Uh, but... you're, you're in Indonesia before that. Oh, I've been keeping tabs. Uh, I, I, look okay. at, I look at that you know thing you young people do. What's it called? Face face show or book or something. <laughs> I look at these young things. Don't worry about that. And he's he comes in and normally tackles some sort of health problem from a journalistic perspective. And I'm pretty sure, although he's only told me one word, allergies. So I'm pretty sure it's all about allergies. And to complete the package, we've got Melbourne legendary GP, Dr Capri. She's here with her incisive intellect, ready to poke and prod at the issues of the morning. <laughs> so sit back, relax and warm yourself with the latest health news and Info and opinions. Now you can all start talking because I'll introduce you. Say hello first, Master Doyle. Good to see you back. Yeah, good to be back, Doolittle. And I have to say, allergies are nothing to sneeze at. For oh, the no. We're going to be getting allergy gags the whole morning. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to brace myself. Hey, you ha- didn't you go over to Indonesia? Haven't I got that right? Uh, yeah, I went there in January. Yeah. Uh, I was I'm doing, a little behind the times. Yeah, I was doing a, a bit of a study tour there and I got to uh, go to a, a TV station in uh, Indonesia. And so, you did uh, some sort of like work experience there as part of your course? Yeah, definitely. And... Uh, like uh, I, d- I did a similar thing at SBS, so uh, I've been quite lucky this year to get all those opportunities. But I have been keeping in touch with uh, the health issues that have uh, been happening. Um, the health issues of the nation. Of the nation, yeah. Well, um, uh, don't get onto it yet because we've got to say hello to everyone. Ah, uh, my apologies. So sit back, relax. We'll be with you in a minute. Before we get to the guests, I'll complete the regulars. Dr. Capri, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks, Doolittle. Oh, look at you saying my name correctly. I know, it's the first time I've got it correct. Look at you all proud of yourself over there. <laughs> I'm done. That's it. I've served my role. Moved right along to the, to the important guests. And the legendary Dr. Helen Opdam. Well, I'm not sure if I'm quite legendary, but I, think you are. I will repeat you. I will quote that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Pop it on the Donate Life website. Dr. Doolittle says Dr. Helen Opdan is legendary. And, you, and I've made notes of your willingness to donate. We've got that. I yes. actually, you know, in preparation for this, I quite seriously did go and put my name on and do my Medicare number. and ra- I had to ring up because my address was wrong. But, yeah, I've done it all. So I'm ready. To, it is Organ Donation Week starting today, isn't it? It is. It's a week of promotion, um, and we want everyone to follow your trailblazing lead. Thank so you. That's fantastic. I'm a trailblazer. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as as I say, I'm not using most of my organs. They're a little bit damaged. 
I have sort of, I have sort of, what would you say, spoiled them a little bit over the years? No, no, no. I think your organs would be um, very desirable. I'm going to put pictures of my <laughs> organs on Facebook. Steve, you're going to use that. That is the first time I've ever heard that. that but what a great going to be on his Facebook and everything. What a great epitaph, though. My organs were desirable. <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> and over to Professor Jeff McColl. G'day, Jeff. I do a little. It's great to have you um, on the show. Is this your first time on this one, radiotherapy? Yes, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Although my colleague from the faculty, uh, Dr. Oh, Shane Huntington, or does he yep. have a pseudonym as I well? I think he's just Dr. Shane. Oh, Dr. Shane. <laughs> I gather he comes oh, yeah. in at 11. So. He, well, you'll be in before then. He's always, he always pops in about halfway through the show. Ah! He pops in and he collects all the information. He just walked by everyone. That's why I went, ah, ah. It wasn't because I was choking. Um, it, was, uh, it was a recognition of Dr. Shane walking to the studio. So he and then say, Einstein and Gogo go straight afterwards. And most people, of course, tune into radiotherapy as their prelude to Einstein and Gogo. I don't know why. I think, you know, it should be the other way around. They should, we should be the main meal. But as it is, we're the entree and they're the main meal. Hey, we're going to jump straight into topics because we have got an action-packed show because um, Jeff's going to talk about, as I said before, PBAC and the medical school. Helen's going to talk about Donate Life. But young Master Doyle, you are going to turn your journalistic attention to the topic of allergies. That is correct, Doolittle. Hit the uh, just, ground running, my friend. Just Hit for, the just for a bit of context, uh, an allergy is an overreaction in the body's immune system to a particle in the environment. And the reason I chose allergies, Doolittle, is because basically it's been the medical issue that's been reported on in uh, the Australian, in the Melbourne media in particular, all of last month, all of July. And it stems from uh, a report in the Fairfax media this week which referenced statistics from Canberra that hospital admissions due to food-related anaphylaxis, the potentially life-threatening form of allergy, have doubled in Australian teenagers since the start of this century. Doubled, OK. Yeah. Got it. Melbourne I'm, I'm was... taking notes as usual. <laughs> Just like at university, I've got my pen out. Double. Oh, keep going. OK, well, there's a few more stats, so uh, keep listening, do little. Melbourne was also referred to as the allergy capital of the world. I love it when we're the capital of anything. Yeah. I love it. The football capital, the allergy capital. Coffee capital. Um, and uh, this claim is backed up by a 2013 study led by Professor Katie Allen from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, which found one in ten children, here's that other stat, do little, one in ten children aged Or as I like months, to call it, ten percent. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just going off. Living in Melbourne had a food allergy. So 10% of children 12 months had a food allergy, for those that missed that, and that group of infants is now being referred to as the allergy generation. And uh, so this reports something of a climax in the issue in the month of allergy-related news in Melbourne, as I mentioned. On the 14th of July, a study by the Peak National Body for Allergies, the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, which you can pronounce ASCII or ASIA, depending on your outlook on life, found that the number of Australians hospitalised with severe, life-threatening allergic reactions has increased by 50% since 2005. Also doubled. Also, oh, no, 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 that's no, not double. That's only increased by 100. Yeah, that's only increased by 50. percent Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so finally, uh, the the uh, last one of these um, allergy-related issues is that. ACIA updated their guidelines for preventing anaphylaxis so that they no longer recommend schools banning foods such as nuts and dairy because, quote, routine food bans in this setting have not been proven to reduce risk. 
They are difficult to enforce, they may result in a false sense of security, may trigger resentment and a lack of cooperation, and may at times result in bullying of the individual. So these new recommendations and the thinking around allergy prevention are evidently changing quite significantly in the medical community, and I'd be interested to get the panel's thoughts on this. So well, what just do you think? Take me back. First, look, give me... So the key things you've just told us is that allergies have um, blown out of all proportion in the last decade or so, and in Melbourne, for some reason, seems to be more so than elsewhere. Yes. First question, then, does anyone have any idea why? Well, there's, like, not one particular... Uh, solution that everybody agrees on, but um, there are things like uh, like how soon uh, children should be exposed to potential allergy causing particles, things like um, certain types of food or animal dander, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, because uh, currently uh, it's, I, I assume it's uh, quite well um, established that uh, you don't want to expose your children to uh, things that might cause allergy or disease, parents hold off on introducing those things until so the children is, are three or four. So this is this idea that we live in too clean a society. We're obsessed yes. with cleaning products and stuff like that. That's that's and quite no a, one that's gets, quite no a one prevalent dirt. one. Yeah, yep. and uh, so that's that seems to be the the explanation that's most commonly hazarded, at least in the media reports. What do you reckon, though, Capri? You're a GP. You would be facing this all the time. Yes, I think that. Um I think what Alex is quoting are the actual statistics on people. Master no, Doyle. Alex would Master be Master Doyle. Doyle, would he? Master Doyle, exactly. You're so bad on oh, names, Capri. Oh, almost as bad as my mum yeah. at names. Yeah. So I'm Keep Capri, going. you're Doyle and you're Doolittle. Thank okay, you. I've got it sorted. Um, uh, yeah, so I think uh, what Master Doyle is talking about are the actual statistics on people who have diagnosed allergies. Mm-hmm. What I see is a, a big group of people who self-diagnosed or um, actually have diagnoses made based on unor- unorthodox allergy testing. And so um, I see a lot of allergy, some of it's true allergy and some of it's um, um, less well uh Questionable, Proven? medically questionable. Just call it medically questionable. And um, I think that, uh, and what ASCIA, I, I choose to call it ASCIA. Um, Doyle and I disagree on that point, but uh, um, ASCIA is really oh my trying God, to. You guys are just so radical the way you disagree I on, know. on these um, um, ASCIA really wants to highlight this issue that um, although um, allergy clearly is um, on the rise in our community, um, that you need to make sure you get a proper diagnosis and um, try and avoid the unorthodox type. Um, type of testing and also make sure that you're aware of what the known treatments and preventative measures are, which have changed quite a bit, particularly prevention of allergy. Um, as um, Doyle has alluded to, in the past um, there used to be the recommendations um, up until I think it was 2008, it was probably changed, where you would um, advise parents who had children who may potentially Um, develop allergies because of a family history, you would advise them to avoid introducing solids until um, over the age of six months or even Uh 12 months or even two years sometimes that the recommendations were. Now that has changed quite dramatically um, and they've been sort of um, advocating for a number of years but now they're trying to really um, spread the word particularly to clinicians and doctors and and the lay community that it's actually um, not it's better to introduce solids at a younger age, certainly from probably the age of four months. Um, And they're they're thinking about this generation of allergy um, teenagers is because perhaps years ago when we were recommending that, this whole um, hygiene hypothesis where you uh, um, have them avoid the allergens at a younger age, perhaps that has contributed to why we're seeing so many um, children in that 
older age group now developing allergies. Right. Which would, which would explain why the, the guidelines are being updated now to sort of perhaps counteract that. Are we getting but, better um, treatments too, as well as better guidelines about prevention? Well... I'm not particularly sure about better treatments. Um, there is certainly a bit of concern surrounding, uh, like, the treatments that um, people take. Like, there was an article in the New Daily just this Wednesday, uh, continuing with uh, this trend of how many, uh, like, uh, media reports there have been on this, which say that um, there are more and more families uh, going for treatments that, um, like, the, the proof around and all the science around them is uh, not uh, not completely accepted. So people are looking for treatments, but as to as to like how well they work or whether they're choosing the most appropriate ones, uh, I can't comment. Interesting. That whole issue, you know, on um, alternative approaches and d- different ideas, you know, it's it's a particularly vexed issue at the moment, I think, but largely because of the internet, because people have got so much access to health information now, and one of the things that challenges everyone, and I include doctors other clinicians, nurses, everyone right down to the layperson is figuring out how to weigh one source of evidence from another. And there's a real art and science to how you actually weigh the information, let alone you know, put the, get the information in the first place. And, um, and, it's import- and it's one of the challenges is that sometimes people see doctors who um, often advocate, you know, obviously the more scientifically based stuff, they see them as being cynical and disrespectful of other views. And so the challenge is to be respectful of all views, yet look at the views for what they are at the, at the same time. Look at, you know, where they come from. And some people have beliefs. They might they prefer not to follow, say, science-based beliefs. They might prefer to follow other faith-based beliefs or historical ones, Chinese medicine that, you know, is based on thousands of years rather than the approaches we have. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging area to be respectful non-cynical, yet also put your point forward and, and argue from the perspective that you come from, be it scientific or historical or faith-based. Yeah, well, it's, it's Askier again who is talking about, like, um, the, the dangers of, uh, well, just referencing this article, like going to medical professionals who suggest allergy treatments who are unregulated. So, as you say, there's that, that sort of sense that um, if you're regulated and you're scientifically proven, you're somehow better. So... I, I wonder if that's uh, somehow sort of stalling the uh, efforts to sort of curb this problem, that kind of disagreement within the medical community. Well, I've read a statistic somewhere where 70% of allergy sufferers actually do use alternative unorthodox treatments, um, and I think... I think um, you should take those... I think you should just say alternative. Why unorthodox? Because that's what's quoted in this paper. Oh, is it? They call, it, they call them unorthodox, and I think that's because there's no scientific evidence that they work, and also it's not what the recommendations from the peak body would suggest mm. uh, are appropriate. And, in fact, and, I think that's yeah. probably what I want to highlight, is that Askia is aware that um, there is this trend that people are, are looking for, because there's no cure for allergy. I mean, it's, it's usually the case when there's no cure for something, people um, endeavour to find, find the cure themselves or, or reach out to um, treatments that might not be orthodox but give them hope that perhaps that there is a cure for, for uh, a chronic problem. So um, ASIA um, is endeavouring to just get the word out that we do know what does work yep. and not to put your um, health at risk by um, perhaps t- um, choosing these less um uh conventional conventional thanks steve uh 
Doolittle. <laughs> <laughs> we have a um, name problem in the studio. Yeah, we yeah. do. Listeners, sorry about that. And we'll that, get there. And that there's a great website. I guess that's a, the oh, good. last thing I would say. I love say a website. Let's finish with ASCII the website. That have a wonderful website that's got wonderful resources, advice, recommendations for um, allergy sufferers, medical practitioners, allied health and schools. They've got lots of programs online that you can go to um, on www.allergy.org.au. And it's a wonderful resource for anybody who's got any any um, questions about allergy. And the other really important thing is that they've come out with these five kind of um, major guidelines as to how we should be approaching allergy. And, and the most important one I want to emphasise is the one about um, the treatment that we know works if you do have this severe form of allergy mm-hmm. with, with, with anaphylaxis is that um, adrenaline or the EpiPen is the only thing that works yep. because there is a bit of a, an issue with uh, that in, in the lay community. I'd actually like to veto Capri there and end with something different, <gasps> which is that... The uh, shock. Yeah. There's going to be a rumble in the studio, <laughs> no, people. No dinner for you. <laughs> oh, God, God. Um, well, as long as there's no nuts, I suppose that's fine. <laughs> but um, looking to the future of this issue, um, yep. as Askia will hold the second summit for the National Allergy Strategy this coming Friday, August the 7th. So the meeting's going to bring together medical experts from a range of backgrounds and will focus on solutions to the high incidence of allergy in Australia, such as access to care, education and training, research and policy. So uh, while the problem exists, I think a good way to end is that people are looking into ways to try and curb it. Nice one. Thanks for coming in, Master Doyle. You are free to escape and enjoy the morning. And uh, thanks for giving that update. And we will put that um, www.allergy.org.au on our favourite Facebook page, which is Radiotherapy on Triple R. So everyone jump on and like us, because we love to be liked. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And our next guest who we're going to have a bit of a chat to as I rustle my bits of paper is Professor Jeff McColl. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeff, just in case you don't know him as well as we do. Professor Jeff McColl, this is when I get on my speaking voice, is the head of the Melbourne Medical School, as I said earlier. And uh, he, this school is ranked the 12th best in the world. Some more stats for you. And the best in Australia. And Jeff is a professor of medical education and training. And in this role, he's overseen probably the biggest change in the medical course in its, oh, I think it's up to about 152-year history, um, changing from an undergraduate to a postgraduate course. And given it was already at the top course, I thought it was a pretty risky move. Anyway, as well as holding this mm-hmm. top job at the Melbourne Medical School... I also hated it, I've got to tell you, because I've got an MD. I've got a doctor of medicine. And now the new course, they all get an MD. I just feel like a regular run-of-the-mill person, which, of course, is probably quite appropriate because I'm not much more than that anyway. (laughs) Anyway, less about me. Let's go back to Jeff. As well as holding the top job at the Melbourne Medical School, Jeff is a graduate of the school. He also completed a PhD at Melbourne Uni and a Master's of Education. Melbourne Uni is in his blood. And uh, he's also a specialist physician and as a rheumatologist. And he's also on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. So... Oh, having gone through all of that, and I cut your CV short by about five pages, Jeff. Welcome again. Thank you very much, Dr. Doolittle. I reckon we'll start with the medical school. Yep. Um, do you want to, Capri? You you were burning with the questions. Do you want to start the ball rolling on the medical school? Well, um, I'm actually going to use an article I read. Uh, I'm not sure you probably have read this, um, Jeff, but uh, by Richard Schwartzstein, 
who um, is your counterpart at the Harvard University. He's also the, um, the Professor of Medical Education and Medicine over there. And he um, wrote an interesting commentary article. It wasn't based on any research, I don't think, um, that he was um, questioning whether um, choosing more humanistic students, I don't know if that's the word, but students who demonstrate those more humane characteristics of compassion and empathy and the things that we would like to think that all doctors um, um, have, uh, that rather than choosing for them, it's actually more important how we um, uh, nurture the medical student and the medical trainee um, in order to preserve those qualities so that when they are they have graduated and become practicing doctors they actually have those particular characteristics and qualities um, uh, sustained or maintained what how do you think how do you feel about that comment so this has been a debate that will continue has been going for a long time and the, the issue to which you are born with a set of personal qualities that allow you to, to practice medicine in a way which we may see as desirable which is with empathy communicating well you know all those kind of things and the degree to which that can be trained mm. uh, my, my view is it's a mixture of both uh, there are probably some that are untrainable and uh, possibly shouldn't be selected and there's a group of people who you can take and move them from inadequate to adequate as a result of the program you put them through. But there's certainly been an enormous change in the way we teach medicine in the last, well, since I went through and, and, and others, where uh, it, it was more about um, you being a big bucket and we put all the facts into the bucket and then somehow at the end of six years you would come out with, with some credibility and, and useful skills as a doctor to uh, try to bring in a, bu a group of individuals who are perhaps already... Um, have those personal qualities of, of good communication and empathy uh, and then put them through a course that, that has, um, uh, you know, the right characteristics to uh, reward those behaviours that we see as, as appropriate as well as providing the information but also the skills to get new information. And, uh, look, I think there's a lot of debate. Uh, I'm not sure the Harvard Medical course is the best course in the world, to be perfectly mm. honest. In fact, I would contend that it's not. It's got a lot of very, very bright people in it, though. Right, yeah. OK. Now, given that um, medicine has so many choices in terms of where people can end up. You know, some people are at the front line dealing with patients and their families, and some people are in laboratories or doing high-precision surgery where maybe different characteristics other than good communication and empathy, but concentration and, you know, that sort of um, very analytical skills are, are important. Are we missing out on attracting some of those individuals by focusing on, you know, humanistic characteristics? So I have lots of interesting conversations in my life, quite often in the evening in, in social events related to the medical school, and this is a question that comes up very often. Am I selecting against the next Nobel Prize winner? Mm. Because on the whole, they may or may not have humanistic quality. I mean, many of them do, I'm sure. Uh, Peter Doherty, our local Nobel Prize winner, clearly has all those humanistic skills. Uh, and uh, will we eventually remove the discipline of surgery entirely from uh, from from medicine because we will you know they need these other they need um, uh, confidence and, and an ability you know and, a t and technical abilities with their hands and so on 
I think if we thought selection tools were that powerful, mm-hmm. we may or may not get there. But I think as a result of the demand for the course and the fact that selection instruments, you know, to some extent uh, are still imperfect, I, I don't think we'll entirely rule out the normal distribution of behaviours that are required to then feed the various disciplines. Um, we still select into the course individuals who I, as, as a course director and head of the medical school, have concerns about them practising in the future. That still happens. Um, and I think we still have a huge spectrum of personalities that come in. Um, I think in a graduate program, the thing that, that's been interesting is the, the nature of their motivation, which I, I feel is probably a little bit different to mm. the group that used to come straight from school. Um, I'm not a great proponent for saying that graduate and undergraduate courses are enormously different, but I think that that motivation can be something that's they're a little bit more certain this is what they want to do. So take us back a step. Tell us about the graduate program. So how does it work? They do an undergraduate course, I'm assuming. That's right. So uh, around the world, for a very long time, particularly the US, Canada, um, in most of Europe, not in the UK, um, students did an undergraduate qualification. It was, uh, you know, generally a generic, so a basic science, sometimes a humanities qualification, mm-hmm. and then at a point where you're, you know, perhaps 20 years of age, make that decision, or you may have made it earlier, yep. uh, to, to enter, enter a medical course. When the University of Melbourne went through its Melbourne model transformation, there was a view that having that generic indica- um, education for the first three years um, as broad as possible um, around learning how to learn and 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 the sort of um, the, you know some of the other aspects of what life at a university should be all about involvement in 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 in, in clubs and pubs clubs and pubs and <laughs> debates and so on which yeah. which they've got an H one for that yeah, the subjects. pubs the pubs and the clubs or just the yeah, anyway yes <laughs> that, that, that that should be an experience offered offered to individuals and uh, I, you know I as you say I, I did an MBBS at, at Melbourne University and I never chose a subject. I never chose yeah. a subject. That's now, I was actually quite a good musician and uh, I What could... was your instrument? Trombone. Ah, oh, uh... that's because you're tall. You, you look like a trombone. You're tall and thin. Yeah, that's right. Yes. yes I, and, I say and that, out of work. I say that in the nicest yes. possible way, by the way. Yes. Not every day you get told you look like a trombone. Sorry, yeah, go back. Is this like people looking like their pets? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What instrument do you play, uh, Helen? Any? No, no, I'm non-musical, which right. is unusual. So we can't pick an instrument no, for you. But sorry. I've taken Jeff off his <laughs> off his mind. So, yes, but but, but yeah, to offer never, this, we, so... ne- we never picked a subject. Absolutely, no. And, in and our day, we're now. Uh, my son, who's doing science at Melbourne, has had an opportunity to do a whole variety mm. of different things mm. outside, mm. which I would say. What have the dinner time? Have the dinner time conversations in the McCall household been enhanced by him doing breadth subjects at Melbourne University? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So, and it's about taking them outside where we had very linear paths. You know, yes. we we did. You know, the the and I think that's one of the advantages of that 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 first three years. And then you do, you know, a fairly traditional four year graduate program. So last year was the um, graduation of the first cohort through the new model. Yes. Um, do you think that, uh, I don't know if there's any statistics on it or you've got done any research on it, but what's your feeling about whether that new, the new model is working? So this is one of the great questions, Capri. We spend a lot of time changing medical courses. We've been changing them pretty regularly every 10 years for quite a long time. And it's often very hard to determine whether anything actually happens as a result. So when I was asked to lead the development of the new course, we set a whole lot of parameters around the course um, uh, outcomes that we thought we might be able to change over time. Now, 
some of them were around those sort of humanistic qualities and, and, and making sure that we had the right communications, more sort of generic things that any medical school would be about. But some of them were about what University of Melbourne's about, which is we are a research-intensive mm. faculty. And um, uh, Doolittle, we're number 12 actually more because of our research, research. performance. Right. Uh, I, the, the degree to which the, the course actually um, is involved with that is, is probably more reputational. So... Right. Uh, so we're interested in research, and so you know some of the parameters are around publications and yes. and whether whether people do PhDs and, and other things, um, but destinations as well, you know, performance afterwards. It's actually quite hard to know whether a course makes a difference. I'm being frank here, uh, so you can look at what I see as a variety of surrogates, but we will collect those things. Um, I don't know. I can give you some anecdotes now, yes. but uh, I, I think it's going to take quite a long time to work it out, and then we'll probably decide to change, change it, it again. again. Yes. Because that is, you've got to keep medical educators in work. Yes, <laughs> but also, you know, it's such a, it is the whole science of education. How do you educate people? How do you meet the needs of the community? You know, you, there's a whole lot of different factors at play here, yes. so it is a challenge. But I also want to ask you a bit about the PBAC, because I don't know, I've never known a heap about the PBAC. In fact, I jumped on the website just to you know, have a quick glance this morning before I came in to get my head around it. But I think you'll do a lot better job. It stands for Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. Jeff, what is it? What is it? <laughs> so it's a group of uh, advisors, men and women, uh, mainly doctors, but also pharmacists and consumers who provide advice to the health minister as to which drugs should be listed on the pharmaceutical best benefits scheme. Right. And the task for us uh, three times a year, so we meet for three days, three times a year, so nine days a year, is to look at uh, sponsored materials, so materials from pharmaceutical companies, to determine whether or not a drug is cost-effective. In other words, the price of the drug is worth the benefit and the side effects, potentially, uh, that you gain from that drug. And uh, that's a process... We perhaps get 30, 35 submissions each cycle and we provide that advice to the minister and then generally those um, those um, pharmaceuticals are listed on the PBS. And the PBS means that people get it at a subsidised cost. That's, That's right. So if you're, if, you're, uh, uh, if you're a concessional, that, you know, it's $6 or so and if you're non-concessional, you get it $30. And right. the great dilemma of PBAC is the costs of drugs have gone up. The unit cost has gone up enormously and we're now looking at medications that might have a unit cost of $150,000 per year uh, per patient. And so these are very different to the kinds of costs that we were looking at when I first joined the mm. PBAC a, a decade ago, where the unit cost may have been 150 or $200 per patient per year. So as you would imagine, determining that that cost is worth the benefit mm. um, Well, interestingly, really on, your, on the website too, I, you know, I thought the choice of words was interesting. It said what we do is we um, weigh up health effectiveness, mm. safety, and cost effectiveness. Mm. You know, I just even thought the choice of the term health, health effectiveness, it wasn't about the evidence base. It's about, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot more than that. It's, it must be incredibly complex because yeah. you're getting information from so many sources that have an, a conflict of interest that's a declared conflict. The drug companies have a conflict of interest. Various other groups have conflicts. The consumer groups. How do you weigh up all these, um, you know, so, how, do you get to the, how do you get to the core of the, the evidence? So the three-day meeting is the culmination of a whole 
series of processes, Doolittle, the, which begin with the sponsor's submission, which begin with consumer and stakeholder submissions, which can come in in various forms, that go to an evaluation group. So a professional group looks at what is hundreds of pages of information, mm-hmm. um, creates a report. It then goes to two subcommittees, one of which I chair, the Drug Utilisation Subcommittee, and there's another one called the Economic Subcommittee. They also form views about the quality of the information and balance it up. And then by the time we get to the three-day, we have a, 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 um, a, a spokesperson model in which you would then um, act to present to the committee um, those all of that information and, and, and form a view. And the view is, uh, is, is binary, which is that we either accept the submission or we reject it. Very occasionally we defer to get further information. But you're quite right. It's a balancing act, and some of that's quite quantitative and clear, and you know, and easy. And some of it will become more complex, particularly cost effectiveness, mm. where you're trying to work out the benefit to the individual, which yeah. is how do I balance up the effect of a drug in multiple sclerosis versus a drug in rheumatoid arthritis versus a drug in allergy mm. versus a drug in melanoma. Had you ever mm. taken a drug off? Because often when a drug gets on the um, gets released, you know, um, over the next five years, a whole lot of new evidence comes out that says it's not as effective or not as good as originally thought. So do you ever take drugs off? So we have a review process. Uh, so the PBAC only ever provides advice to the minister, to mm-hmm. little, of course. So we only... Uh, and reviews will sometimes result in, in changes to the to the listing, uh, it's fairly rare for drugs to be taken off entirely, um, but it does it does occur. Hasn't pa- paracetamol recently been taken off the PBS? Sometimes medications are removed, so it was an over it was because of its over the counter availability. So we PBAC made a decision in March of this year around not subsidising drugs that are available over, over the, the counter. counter. So it wasn't same it, was, it was well it was around the subsidy and mm. around the pharmacy payment. So there was a lot more cost involved in providing something that was very cheap. Paracetamol mm. costs. Next to nothing. Mm. Goodness Very gracious, effective. it's a it's such an important committee. I mean, that is the you know underpinning of a lot of our medical health care in the country. So it's such an important thing. I reckon we could do miles more on it, but I, we just wanted to touch on it today, seeing we had you in here. Happy to come back, do a little. Oh, fantastic! You're we will a hold good time, you to that. You? We oh, will enjoy hold it. you to that. You know, <laughs> I like studios, yeah. <laughs> and we've got it recorded now. We've yes. got, it's like a contract. Three triple R. Um, now, we have just been talking to Professor Jeff McColl about everything to do with the medical school and PBAC, but now we are going to move on to the important topic of organ donation, because it is organ do- or Donate Life Week or Organ Donation Week. And to help us do all this, we've invited into the studio Dr Helen Opdam. Helen is the National Medical Director of the Organ and Tissue Authority, also known as Donate Life. By training, Helen is an intensive care specialist physician working at the Austin Hospital and Warringal, I think, too, in intensive care. Helen's been involved in organ donation movement really since early in her career. She was previously the director of Donate Life Victoria. She sits on various national and international bodies promoting and overseeing organ donation and is a key part of the training of doctors and nurses in all issues around dealing with organ donation. So I've already said hi to you, Helen, but welcome again in your, now in your official Donate Life capacity. Thanks, Doolittle. Pleasure to be here. Hey, why don't you just kick kick us off by telling us how Australia's travelling on the organ donation front? Look, we're travelling better than what we were, but we've still got a long way to go. So, for example, last year in Australia, there were 378 people who who donated organs after death. 
And that's an increase from the historic average, which used to be about 200 people a year. That's as a result of new federal funding and a whole range of national strategies to boost awareness and improve processes in hospitals to ensure that every person who can donate organs after death is identified. Right. You know, one of the big myths out there, people think that donation's um, commonplace, but there's only about 700 people each year who die and can donate organs to help other people through transplantation. So that's about 1% of the people who die in hospitals die under the very particular circumstances where it's, it's technically feasible that they could donate organs to help give other people life-saving transplants. So it's a really rare opportunity. So it's a little bit like trying to find a needle in a haystack, one in a hundred. So there must be lots of education in hospitals about how to recognise people. There is. It's like that infrequent event. How do you ensure that every element of a complex process that flows on from someone basically dying in an intensive care unit on a ventilator, that's the sort of situation where donation's feasible. It's usually a sudden, unexpected death, usually a severe brain injury. And how do you make sure that that opportunity is identified, that the family are cared for and communicated with in a really sensitive but informative way so that that precious opportunity for donation is really looked after and families are hopefully able to provide consent in that situation. Yeah, um, Helen, I jumped online and had a look at the website and I think what I enjoyed is looking at your myth-busting section <clears throat> because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings and um, confusion about who can donate and, and what it actually means if you're in intensive care on life support. What does that mean for your last few hours of life? And I think there's all those kind of uncertainties and, and that make people less likely to donate. So what are the most important myths to bust this morning? Look, I think one of the things um, we all want to think about as a community, I think we'd, we all want transplantation to be available. It's very rare for someone to say they don't want to transplant for themselves or a person close to them if they, their life was in jeopardy through organ failure. So we all want our transplant, transplantation to be available. But, you know, unfortunately, donation occurs in the context of death, and mm. I don't think we like thinking about death. Mm, too much. No, exactly. It's sort of one of those sort of subjects. But, but the truth is, you know, when you die, we, you don't really need your organs. And if we want organ transplantation to be available, well, then we all have to, you know, hop on the bus. We all have to be prepared to be donors. And that's really what this next week is about, Donate Life Week. It's really trying to promote awareness and get people to think about donation. And there's two important things they need to do. The first thing is they need to let those closest to them know that they're willing to be a donor because in those end-of-life situations, the healthcare professionals are always talking with the family and families are always asked to confirm the donation wish of the, the person closest to them, the person they love. And the second thing they need to do is to register on the Australian Organ Donor Register. How do they do that? I've done it, I know. I had my Medicare card out. <laughs> Tell us why we've got you on the topic, how they do that. Well, you can go online. Look, if you did a search for the Australian Organ Donor Register, you'd find it. But another quick way through is to go to the Donate Life 
www.gov.au website. You'll get some very useful information that uh, Dr Capri has uh, referred to. And then there's a link and you can go on to the Australian Organ Donor Register. And it is a more informed way of registering than what we had in the past. There's some information there. And, and when someone dies in a circumstance where they can donate, the family's always spoken with, but also the donation register's always accessed to see whether that individual had registered. Currently, only about 25% of people over the age of 16 are registered nationally. We want to boost that number. Mm-hmm. But even if people haven't registered and their family know that they were willing to be a donor, that information is always sought from the family in an end-of-life situation. What about the types of organs? What organs are we up for these days? What, what can be donated? Well, you know, transplantation is a, a miraculous um, experience. And if, if you think if it wasn't for um, someone receiving a transplant, their life expectancy would be days, weeks or months. I mean, people who receive transplants will die without one. And, and if you think of, you know, other illnesses or chronic diseases, we don't have cures or very good treatments often, well, transplantation is an amazing treatment that when you meet someone and you've heard their personal story and the bleakness of what they were facing and then they receive a transplant, it's what really drives the many of us who are committed to really making um, donation and transplantation more commonplace in this country. So people can receive a heart transplant, a lung transplant, liver transplant, um, kidney transplants, which enable them to not only live uh, longer but live free from the constraints of dialysis. Uh, so, you know, it's life-changing. You know, the reason I'm asking all this is because I did a quiz online the other day to try and win two movie tickets, and I had to answer a whole... I'm serious. And so I had to answer a whole lot of questions. And, you know, it, it asked which is the most common one. I, th- I put kidney. I hope I got that right. Yes. I haven't got well the done. movie tickets yet. I filled it out. What was it? it also asked me about religions. It said which... It had a list of religions, and it said which religions oppose transplant, and the bottom choice was none of the above. What's yeah. the correct answer? Well, I went well, with none. No, I presume many of the common re- yeah, religions were listed. Ones. Well, in fact, you know, um, all of the common religions, um, um, Christian religion, the, the Muslim religion, Buddhism, Judaism, they're all supportive of donation. And, in fact, when you um, listen to the, the re- religious leaders, often in their faith are statements um, such as, you know, saving a life is really the best thing you, you can, can do, do in your in your life, and that um, is more important than than anything else. So sometimes people are not aware of that, or they're concerned that the donation process will dis- disrupt some um, practices, cultural practices mm. around the time of death. But the religious uh, leaders will say do- donating and saving the life of, of another is more important than any of those things. Mm. So religions are, are all in all extremely supportive of donation. Corneal donation, it's, it's one of those ones that's often just at the bottom of the list, but wow, does it have an enormous effect on, on an individual and can be a far greater number of potential donors. Well, thank you for raising that because we've been talking about organ donation and I've mentioned that the circumstances under which that 
is possible are fairly restricted. But mm. but tissue and eye donation. So eye donation can be the whole eye, where the sclera, the the white part of the um, the structure of the eye, can be used for reconstructive surgery for people who have serious eye conditions. And the cornea, which is just the clear part of the um, the eye in front of the iris, that can restore sight to people with with blindness. And and eye donation and also that of other tissues such as bone, um, a shaving of skin used for burns victims and mm-hmm. heart valves, donation of those tissues and eyes is possible under many, many more circumstances than the ones I was outlining in that those tissues can be um, retrieved for up to 24 hours after someone has died with their heart stopping. Mm-hmm. So many more people can donate eye and tissue, which can be equally beneficial to people who need transplantation of those materials and on the website you tick which organs you do if you've got a particular objection because some people you know worry about the eyes you know window to the soul and all that so you can tick and untick you know different ones okay i didn't know that Uh, um now helen i this morning before i came i spoke to my husband about um saying i said to him you do know that i'm i've ticked organ donation i want to be an organ donor he said no i didn't know that which i was actually surprised he didn't know that i wanted to be an organ donor um and he said it's on your license isn't it and i looked at my license i said no it's actually not on my license so um I assumed it was because I certainly remember when I when I applied for my recent license I had to tick that box but it's not on my renewed license so I'm not sure if other people are in the same position assuming that when they last registered for their license they have um, elected to be an organ donor but it doesn't necessarily mean they still are is that the case? Well, it, a number of years ago, um, the, we moved to a national register, mm. and so um, it stopped being possible in most states to, to register th- for donation at the time of li- obtaining a licence or licence renewal. It's still possible through that manner in South Australia, and then there's a link through connecting that information onto the Australian Organ Donor Register. But there was a desire to have a nationally consistent way of registering, and, and hence we have the national mm. register. And I think people have different thoughts about, you know, whether that was a good thing, to, removing it from, from the licence. Uh, but, look, that's what we have now nationally. It's, it's um, always accessed by health professionals. Um, people can carry a, a, a card related to the Australian Organ Donor Register. But, um, but it is information held in a central database, which I guess is a bit different to sort of rummaging through people's pockets and looking for, for a licence. Fair enough. What about... I was, um Reading in the paper just this week, you know, I'm sure it was a story around Organ Donation Week, all these multiple transplants, and they had the story of this guy who'd had, you know, they said it was triple, two lungs and kidneys. Um, But I think there's lots of other multiple transplants. Now, where's that all up to? Uh, Yes, so sometimes people are in need of of a transplant of of more than a single organ. Um, So sometimes people need, you know, a a double lung and heart transplant, or sometimes... um, they're just unlucky. Well, this guy was cystic fibrosis. He was in the paper, so... Yeah. And he was also on... I also saw him on the news being interviewed. And so his cystic fibrosis had obviously affected his lungs, but it had affected his kidneys too. And I think they sometimes need even pancreas and all. I don't know. Yeah. Other stuff too. Yeah, so look, they're pretty rare circumstances, um, but sometimes people are in need of, of more than a single organ, and that, that is undertaken. And what about intestine? There's been um, a couple of intestinal transplants uh, undertaken nationally. There's now a national program. And, um, and again, these are generally people who have had um, 
unusual illnesses that have led to loss of intestines so that they're continually dependent on intravenous feeding and there can be a lot of difficulties and complications with that. Uh, so there's been a couple of uh, successful intestinal transplants nationally, yeah. I won't mention faecal transplants at this point, but uh, I was going to ask about living-related donorship for, for kidneys and where that is in Australia. Yes, so um, living donation's feasible for kidney donations. Because I think Doolittle's donating. Yeah, that's what I wanted to this... donate today at the end of the show. Oh, good, because <laughs> I was a bit anxious you she was going to offer to donate yeah. something else. Uh, so about a third of the kidney transplants are through living donation, and very rarely it's possible for someone to donate a, a, a lobe, the the smaller lobe of their liver. Usually that would be to, from a parent to a child. In fact, mm. there was one done recently mm. with a, a mother donating um, a segment for her liver to her, her child, which was life-saving. But a, a, about a third of the kidney transplants uh, nationally are through living donation. But one of the problems there, sometimes people don't have a suitable living-related donor. Um, none of these things are risk-free. And sometimes even if you have a living-related donor, they're not the right match for you in terms of your immune system. And one of the other things that's happened nationally in the last few years is the Australian Kidney Exchange Program. And there's been over 100 kidney transplants possible through linking up pairs of people, say... Each person who needs a kidney transplant has a relative who is willing to donate a kidney, but they're not the right match. If you swap those pairs around, and in fact you can even form longer chains of mm. swaps and linkages, it's possible then for that transplant to be a correct match and to go ahead. Mm. And so that's a new program that's led to more than... 100 people receiving kidney transplants. Yeah, I've read about some of those fascinating ones in the US, and there's a few good radio programs about them too. There's also some fascinating stuff out there about how the original donor registry set up, because the guy who set it up was a professor of economics and he won the Nobel Prize for it, and that same matching is what went on to become the basis of matching for dating websites. So as well as helping all those people with organ <laughs> donations, it's helped it people like me too. It comes back to the same thing <laughs> It's donation yeah. or your, um, yeah, my your love social... Life. Um, you know the other thing before, because we're almost out of time, and I just want to find out what's happening for Organ Donation Week? What sort of events are going on around the country? Is there any way people can get involved? Look, there are a lot of um, events around the country. In Victoria in particular, uh, yesterday was launched the Big Picture Exhibition in the City Square. That's on Swanson Street between mm -hmm. Flinders Lane and Collins Street. And that was uh, is a, a huge photographic uh, display, a 35-metre print, featuring 100 uh, recipients, donor family members or people waiting for a transplant. So it's a real glimpse of people touched by donation and transplantation and it's by an artist, uh, Pollyanna, so I'd encourage people to pop down to the city, uh, city square, have a look at that. Also today on the Mount Buller ski field, uh, there's Donate Life Day and there's a DJ and a stand and a whole lot of Ooh, um, promotion, promotional activity around uh, donation. Uh, so there are a couple of the key events happening in I Victoria. also saw the Melbourne International Film Festival was launched with Paul Cox's movie Oh, Force meant, of Destiny. Force of Destiny, which is about... It, look, it's a fictional thing starring David Wenham based on his life, though, and his own transplant. But instead of the story being about a filmmaker who needs a transplant, it's about, I think, a sculptor who... Yeah. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, I went to the you opening went to the night of uh, Miff, Miff and uh, Jeffrey Rush was there and Paul Ooh. Cox and David Wenham. Uh, and uh, also... I, 
uh, the gorgeous actress who played um, the Indian woman. The, I yeah, can't pronounce her name. Beautiful. Yes, and I it was a, it's a fantastic film. I'd encourage people to see it. And it's it's lovely. These sus- subtly made Australian films, a little different to the usual sort of mm, blockbuster Hollywood, Hollywood stuff. Yeah. And um, look, it is a story about donation and transplantation, but it's a love story too. Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much for coming in, Helen, and telling us all about that. Also, Professor Jeff McColl, thanks for coming in. And uh, I've, I've already scheduled you in for the timetable for another one to talk more. <laughs> Capri, wonderful to see you again. Yes, thank you, Doolittle. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're going to hand you over to the wonderful scientists from Einstein and GoGo who are going to entertain you. Make sure you get onto our Facebook page, see all the links, Radiotherapy on Triple R. In the meantime, science yourself to your heart's consent. content. Sorry. By falling madly in love with someone who is both the positive and negative traits of our imperfect parents, what we unconsciously want is to get what we didn't get in childhood. Three, triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.